Good morning, everybody. I thought I'd bring my Bible up here today just to impress you. I do have one. I normally don't bring it up here, but there's just not enough room. But I want you to know that I bring my message from the Scripture. Do you have anything scary coming up in your life, like a job interview, or maybe you're doing a presentation at work? Or maybe you got something scary coming up, like a speech. They say people are just afraid of dying as they are of getting up in front of people and speaking. Or maybe you have a surgery coming. And whenever we have big events in our lives, we usually take one of two tracks. We either deny it and ignore it, and we're just going to deal with it when it comes, or we become preoccupied and distracted by it, and it impacts how we live in the present. Jesus knew that a cross waited for him. And at this point in Mark's gospel, he's probably about a week out from his crucifixion. We can only imagine what it was like for Jesus to live his whole life knowing that that traumatic event awaited him. However, Jesus didn't deny it because in Mark chapter 10, for the third time, he predicts he's going to suffer and die and rise from the dead. Nor did he seem distracted by it, because he dealt with the issues uh, that came his way, as we're going to see in Mark chapter 10. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to walk through Mark chapter 10 and uh, discuss some of this stuff. So pull out your bulletin. We have some uh, fill-in-the-blanks. Um, if you're tired from the time change, you know, pull out your earbuds, put in some music. Just don't snore too loud, or if you fall off your chair, please don't make too much noise and disturb those around you. But I'm going to mark, uh, walk through Mark chapter 10. So uh, hopefully we'll finish up. Uh, yeah, that is the correct time, 11.30. Okay. Um, mark 10 opens with Jesus and his friends, the Pharisees. And some of the Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It appears that the Pharisees were trying to just test Jesus to see if he knew what the law said. And Jesus kind of turned the tables on him and said, well, What does the law say? And the key thing is here is he got them to admit that Moses permitted a divorce. The key thing is that the religious leaders of his day were always looking for a way to get out of marriage. So Jesus brings it home and says there's no command. Now Jesus then goes on and he quotes Genesis uh, chapter 2, which I'm sure many of you have heard this if you go into wedding ceremonies. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the last sentence and a half of that, that's not from Genesis. That's Jesus' commentary on Genesis chapter 2. And Jesus is making a statement about the permanency of marriage. Because the Jewish leaders, when they got together to discuss this passage, they were always trying to figure out, what are good grounds to divorce? How can I get out of my marriage? How can I get rid of my old lady? A man in that culture could divorce his wife for the most trivial of reasons, including having bad breath, of all things. 
women had no rights, and if they were divorced, they were essentially left destitute. It's not like today where there's alimony and the splitting of assets. They were kicked to the curb and had nothing. But under Jewish law, men could divorce their wives, but wives could not divorce their husbands. There was a double standard. And what Jesus was doing by making this statement is he was taking a stand against the mistreatment of women. But Jesus was advocating the permanency of marriage. However, he, as well as the Apostle Paul, said that there were some exceptions. Jesus basically said if there was infidelity involved in the uh, spouse that was cheated upon, uh, they could uh, divorce and remarry. And Paul says in a case of a mixed marriage where there was a non-believer and a believer, if the non-believer left, the believer was free to remarry without any um, stigma associated with it. Um, because if you divorced for any other reason and remarried, that was considered adultery. And that's what Jesus told his disciples a little bit later. He, says, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. And I just told you that women couldn't divorce their wives. Well, evidently, Jesus, as well as Mark, knew that this message needed to get out to the whole world. So Jesus is letting the whole world know what the standard was uh, for marriage. So the point here is Jesus was taking the time to state how important the institution of marriage is. The culture at that time, like today, marriage is kind of a disposable commodity. But marriage, according to Paul in Ephesians 5, was meant to represent the relationship between Christ and his church, one of intimacy and love and support. However, relationships and marriages are messy, divorces are complicated, and I just wanted to take a few minutes here and talk about sometimes in a marriage... Uh, abuse is taking place. And the abused spouse feels trapped and is either afraid or unable to leave. And many abused Christians, especially women, don't leave the marriage because they feel it's displeasing to God. There's a verse in Malachi that says, God hates divorce. And that verse rings in their mind. And that, with the stigma of being divorced in the church, has caused many abused women to rationalize staying in an abusive marriage. No one should allow themselves to be abused. Even Christian counselors sometimes, I think they miss the mark, and they say, no matter what, you have to stay married. And I believe, based on Scripture, the overarching principle is love. You know, we're to love God with our whole heart, love others as we love ourselves. Implied in that is we're to have a healthy self-love. And then Jesus boiled down all the commandments to love one another. And sometimes the most loving thing to do for an abused spouse is to hand divorce papers to the abuser. They need to get their life together. And also, no children should have to witness the abuse of a parent. It leaves scars on their lives. You have to love your children. Nor should the children be allowed to see that pattern when they grow up to be married. They should not think that it's okay to be abused, nor should they think it's okay to abuse others. So the first point here in your bulletin is if your marriage is in trouble, seek help. A marriage counselor is a whole lot less expensive than a divorce settlement. And if you are an abused spouse, free yourself. If you're an abused spouse, free yourself. In the next scene in Mark 10, children were brought to Jesus, but the disciples, being the knuckleheads that they are, were chasing them away. 
The disciples were headed to Jerusalem with Jesus because they thought Jesus was going to be heading up a revolt. And the disciples didn't want to spend time with the children because the children didn't have anything to offer the disciples. The children had no political or military power and therefore were useless in the disciples' mind. However, Jesus, on the other hand, again, despite having the thought that the cross awaited him in Jerusalem, he took time to bless the children. So no matter what's going on in our life, point number two in your bulletin is always remember that people are more important than programs. We can become very consumed by the things that are pending in our lives, but we need to follow Jesus' example and remember that people are more important than programs. Jesus said, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter in at all. The people in Jesus' day knew that some time in history the kingdom of God was going to be established on earth. They didn't know how, but they thought maybe it would either come by force or through some radical moral reform. But leave it to Jesus, only he would think to use children to explain the kingdom of God. And to come uh, to God as a child, many have taken that to mean we need to come to our Father just as with a simple, pure, childlike faith, accepting God at his word. And others have said that we need to be powerless like children. Because when we truly recognize that we're powerless, we have no one to depend upon upon except God. And that's really all that he wants us to do, is to depend upon him. As we move along in chapter chapter 10 of Mark, there's a a man who comes up to Jesus and asks a simple question. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied by asking him, how do you do on these commands? And Jesus gave him about five or six commands. And these were commands that you could see how well you were performing. Like, are you stealing? Are you lying? Are you committing murder or adultery? And this man, um, he said he's kept all those from his youth up. Evidently, this man was serious about his faith. First of all, he comes to Jesus. The text tells us that he knelt before Jesus. He asked this important question. He wasn't testing Jesus or trying to bait Jesus. And he indicated that he knew the commands and he was keeping them. And Jesus must have sensed his sincerity as he said uh, to the man, or he sensed um, his sincerity by, this text says that he felt a love for this man. And then Jesus put forth a proposal to this man. He said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The text then says that the man was saddened and went away grieving because he owned much property. So even though this man appeared to be keeping the law, Jesus' proposal caused him to see that his love of money was greater than his love of God, and therefore he was violating the law, and he was a sinner, and therefore he was in need of help. Now, there's many people who, probably some people in this room, read this verse and it scares them because they think they need to give up everything in order to follow Jesus. Well, you can relax. The verbs in this 
sentence are all singular. He, Jesus is just talking to the man. It's you go and you sell and you give and you follow. It's singular, not you all give, you all sell, you all follow. It was very unique. So you're off the hook. You don't have to sell everything. But we should all be willing to give up whatever we have if God so chooses to ask us. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy or having money. But 1 Timothy chapter 6 warns us, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So notice it's not money is the root of all sorts of evil, it's the love of money that's the root of all sorts of evil. And if any of you are struggling with your money, uh, you can send it to me. I'll take it off your hands. I'll be glad to help you with that problem. After the man uh, walked away, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. How did the disciples respond? They were amazed at his words. Jesus went on to say, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And what did the disciples do to that statement? It says, they were even more astonished and said to him, who then can be saved? So the implication from the disciples' reaction is that there was some sort of a mindset or superstition in those days that rich people were rich because they were blessed of God. And if they were blessed of God, of course they would go to heaven. But Jesus is turning that upside down. His statement about the difficulty of wealthy people entering heaven was really meant to say that rich people tend to rely too much upon themselves, their abilities, their wealth, instead of relying upon God. And that's all that God wants us to do is to trust him. So point number three in your bulletin is your net worth has nothing to do with your standing before God. It has absolutely nothing. If you're rich, it doesn't mean you're special in God's eyes. Poverty doesn't necessarily mean it's a virtue and you're blessed of God. It has nothing to do. The only thing that gives us a right standing in God's eyes is when we, by faith, accept the grace that God extends to us. It's something we can't earn, we don't deserve. It is a gift that is received solely by faith. Your net worth has nothing to do with your standing before God. Now Peter, at this point in Mark's gospel, refers back to the rich man in Jesus' statement to him about selling everything and following him. And Peter then reminds Jesus that he and the other disciples have left everything behind and followed him. So the implication for Peter that he was getting at was, hey, JC, what, what, what's in it for us? And this is what Jesus said. And this is probably the most controversial verse of the whole text. Uh, he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. That's quite a statement, except for the part about persecution. Now, is this a promise from Jesus that we're going to be materially blessed 
if we leave everything behind and follow him? It certainly sounds very inviting, but at face value, is it true? Does it mean what it says? I think experientially you agree with me that you don't know too many wealthy missionaries or wealthy pastors. Otherwise, if it was a blank check, if it was totally true for every situation, going into Christian work would be the most sought-after job on the planet. Big Daddy would be having all kinds of job ads for come work at my church. Is it possible for God to bless people? Absolutely. Does he bless some? Yes. But is it applicable to everybody? I don't think so. Jesus goes on and he ends the statement. What comes right after this is this passage, this little verse that says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This sentence just hangs there. It doesn't seem to fit into anything, but I think that's key to understanding what's going on here. Now, I'm trying to understand what that text meant. I think the last time I talked, I was saying about sometimes you have questions in the Bible and you've got to dig a little bit to find answers because of the story I was telling you about the uh, why did Jesus heal the blind man in two stages, you know, what was the point of that? So what, what was this all about? Well, I looked at uh, Mark's gospel and I looked at the parallel account in Matthew. And as you can see, um, the different sections of Mark correspond to a passage in, in Matthew. And pretty much almost verse for verse it goes down and in verse 31, we have, you know, but the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that same phrase appears over here. And then as Mark continues on, uh, Matthew picks it up again in, in uh, uh, chapter 20. And again, it's a pretty close correlation. It just pretty much says the same thing. But if you notice, there is a big chunk of passage missing in Matthew 20. It's 16 verses. Mark, for some reason, didn't record it. What's there? There's a parable about service and rewards. And in that parable, Jesus tells us to his disciples, he says, there's a landowner who needs his crops harvested, so he goes out to the marketplace and he hires a group at six in the morning and he says, go work in my field for a denarii a day, which was a fair and reasonable wage for that time. So they agree, they go out, and they start working. About 9 o'clock in the morning, the guy goes out, and he finds some more workers. He says, go out and work, and I'll pay you what's fair. There's no discussion about the amount of money, but evidently they trusted him, and they went out, and they started working. The landowner goes out at noon, 3 o'clock, and then also at the very end of the day at 5 o'clock, and he hires additional workers, and he sends them into the field to work. So at the end of the day, uh, the landowner gets his foreman and says, I want you to pay the workers, but start with the last first. So again, a play on words, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. So when the last group that was hired right at 5 o'clock, they only worked for about an hour, they received a denarii. They received the full day's wage for one hour's work. Well, the first group that was looking on, they said, wow, if they got a denarii, we should get more because we've worked longer and harder. All the workers were paid a denarii, including the group, 
that started at 6 in the morning that worked all day in the heat and whatnot. And they were upset with the landowner, but the landowner reminded them that he paid them what he had promised them. And it was his business to pay his workers whatever he wanted to. And then Jesus ends that parable by saying, the last shall be first and the first last. Now in this parable, the landowner represents God. The landowner did nothing unjust, just like God does nothing unjust. The landowner was gracious to the later workers. He didn't have to be, but he was. Just likewise, God is gracious to us when he doesn't have to be. The first group of workers represents those who think they deserve more, and they resented the later workers because they were the recipients of God's grace. In the end, people will get what God has promised, yet for some reason, some people will get more than others. We, we don't know why. Jesus was not teaching economics. But when you think about it, God really owes us nothing but wrath. That's truly what we deserve. So we should never complain about anything that he gives us. So the key to understanding Jesus' statement to Peter about you know, being blessed, um, it's connected to the phrase, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that leads us to this parable. And basically it's saying that our understanding of God's reward is not the same. The first shall be last and the last shall be first just means that things are upside down or backwards or what we expect to be true is not always the case. So we should expect the unexpected when it comes to, to dealing with God. But the point of all this is point number four, and that is rewards should never be a part of our motivation for serving Jesus. Rewards should never be a part of our motivation for serving Jesus. We love him because he first loved us, is what the scriptures tell us. We owe him a tremendous debt that we could never repay. In the next scene of Mark's gospel, Jesus and the disciples, it says they are actually headed on the road to Jerusalem. And Jesus, now for the third time, foretells of his coming death, his suffering, death, and resurrection. And you would think at this point, after the three times being mentioned, that the disciples would start to understand the seriousness of what's about to happen. If somebody we knew kept talking about dying, we would be very concerned. But what were John and James concerned about? They said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left in your glory. These guys still just don't get it. In the prediction, of, in light of the Jesus' prediction of his death, John and James' request just seems ridiculous. And it also seems even more ridiculous because in chapter 9, there's a record of the disciples squabbling among themselves about who was the greatest. And Jesus had to bring a child into their midst to help give them perspective on what was going on. But anyway, the other disciples were irritated about John and James' request. And disunity is about to break out. But Jesus intervenes. And he says, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here Jesus is turning things upside down by telling them that greatness in God's eyes is found in serving others. And here also Jesus hinted at his death again. But here he tells them why he's dying. It's not for some earthly kingdom's sake. It is 
to free others. He's going to be giving his life as a ransom for others. And I'm sure that dying for someone else was not high on the list of priorities for the disciples. So point number five in your bulletin is, does your idea of greatness involve serving others? Does your idea of greatness involve serving others? If I can get my fingers to work, I can flip to the next page. So far in Mark chapter 10, Jesus, as he's headed to Jerusalem, has had to deal with the question of divorce. What do you do with children? A rich man asked him an intelligent question about eternal life. The disciples were questioning about rewards, and they also were questioning about authority. So as Mark chapter 10 ends, Jesus has one more distraction, if you will, to contend with. And it was a blind man who wants Jesus to heal him. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The man cries out for Jesus, calling him son of David. This means that the blind man knew that Jesus was the Messiah. That is the terminology that you will find referring to the Messiah. Somehow the blind man knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But as he cried out, others were telling him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, all the louder. And he did get Jesus' attention, and Jesus called him to come to him. And then Mark provides us a very simple but powerful observation. It says, throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up, and he came to Jesus. And you can really quickly read over that. But the cloak was an outer garment that was used, could be used as a uh, coat in, the, uh, in cold weather. It was also could be used for... Uh, bedding at night and the cloak was probably also used as like a basket so that you know as people threw money or food or whatever he could collect the, the charitable gifts that were given to him and also it was probably big enough that he could probably use it as a sack to carry whatever few possessions that he did have but essentially the cloak was the most important thing in this man's life and by throwing it aside he was demonstrating his complete trust and reliance in Jesus. And as he approached this man, Jesus no doubt probably could see that this man was blind. Nevertheless, Jesus asked the blind man what he could do for him. The question almost seems needless. The blind man could have asked for money, he could have asked for food, but his faith was bigger than that. He said, I want to regain my sight. There was no pretense or religious pride. He just gave him his request. He didn't preface the petition with a list of good deeds he'd done or some kind of false humility. He just simply presented his desire to Jesus, trusting that Jesus was both willing and able to fulfill it. And then Jesus speaks the word and heals him. And for whatever it's worth, Mark records another observation for us. And it's really easy to miss this when you read it. The blind man's name was Bartimaeus. If you've gone to church, you've heard this your whole life. But one thing you may not have realized is that no other person mentioned in Mark's gospel who was healed by Jesus is mentioned by name. It's the only time in Mark's gospel where someone who was healed was named. And actually, there's only like about four other people that are named. All the people that Jesus healed, very few are named. But here in Mark's gospel, 
his name is provided, Bartimaeus. What does it mean? Well, Bar means son. And the root of the word Timaeus means respected, honored, or valued. And combining these two together, what it means is valued son. Mark is telling us that the poor blind man was valued in Jesus' eyes. And if we recognize Jesus as our Messiah, we are his valued sons and daughters. So do you recognize Jesus as your Messiah? If you do, I have a challenge for you today. I want you to throw aside your cloak, point number six. Every one of us sitting in this room has a need of some sort. Are you willing to throw aside all the things that you're relying upon, your reputation, your ability, your money, or maybe your smashing good looks, whatever? And do you recognize that despite all of our faults, we are valued sons and daughters in Jesus' eyes? Are we willing without any pride or pretense to ask him to meet our deepest need? So today I'm going to end the service a little bit differently. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. And I'm going to ask you for the next couple minutes to sit quietly where you are. Think about what you're relying upon. I want you to recognize that you need to cast that aside. And for the next couple minutes, ask Jesus to meet your greatest need. Trust him, whatever the result may be. Make it known to him. Give it to him.